Welcome to the Reading for Success podcast brought to you by the Success League. This podcast focuses on books, articles, and other resources for customer success, provides an overview of each, and gives you an honest assessment of whether or not it's worth your time. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, my name is Kristen Hare, and I'm the host of Reading for Success. I'm also the CEO of the Success League, a boutique customer success consulting and training firm based in San Francisco. Today, I'm excited because I'm joined by Rick DeLisi, who's one of the authors of our most recent book, The Effortless Experience. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks for having me. So first of all, tell me what inspired you to write this book. Well, the three of us were part of a team that had been doing research for a long time about the customer service business and the right goals and objectives. And what is it that service teams and the service function at large was trying to accomplish. And and the big thing that we were seeing is that many companies were going after what we called the false god of delight. (laughs) There had been this conventional wisdom for so many years in the service industry that when something goes wrong, when a customer is having some kind of an issue or problem that requires resolution, the way to win their loyalty is to go above and beyond to create some sort of memorably spectacular experience to delight your customer. Yeah. And what we learned in our research is that not only is that the wrong strategy, but it's very hard to accomplish. Yeah. Our research showed that exceeding customer expectations or delighting people in a service interaction only happens 16% of the time, (laughs) which means you're failing 84% of the time. Right. And what we learned is that even when a customer is delighted by a service experience, they're no more likely to be loyal than if the experience was handled in a fast and efficient way. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I talk a lot about two experiences that I've had as a consumer. Um, one of them was with Delta Airlines, and one of them was with Mini Cooper. And both brands that I adore. I love to this day, and they had really great experience with with those brands. And I've talked about them in a lot of you know articles and podcasts and stuff before. But when I looked back after reading your book on those two experiences, what I realized was that they didn't delight me because they went over the top. They delighted me because they gave me what I was looking for in the first place in a fast and easy way that was different from their particular industry because they're in industries that tend to not do that. So it's like the airline industry has like customer success fiascos constantly. And so a customer, you know, a customer experience where you like quickly can get your canceled flight rescheduled and you get to the airport and you get upgraded seems like something amazing, but it's just what you should get. And (laughs) same thing with the car buying experience at the time, there weren't, a lot of companies that had websites where you could go customize your car and just order it and get it and not have to haggle. It was always a big ordeal to go buy cars. And that experience was so great. Not because that experience was over the top, but because that experience was where it should be and everybody else was falling short. So, you know, it made me really rethink those experiences that I had considered delightful through the lens of, you know, really, they were just getting me to what I was looking for faster. Yeah, a couple of things that we learned about delight. First of all, customers should be delighted by what your company makes, what you do, (laughs) what your product is all about. Yeah. 
Delight should come from the experience of using a product or service, not from what happens when something goes wrong. Right. The second thing is, before we wrote The Effortless Experience, we wrote a piece that was printed in, in Harvard Business Review called Stop Trying to Delight Your Customers, based on the same theme. But for all these years since, we still have people come to us who say, oh, I read your HBR piece called Stop Delighting Your Customers. And our reaction is always, we never said that. We never said, stop delighting your customers. We said, stop trying to delight them, as if that's the correct goal for a service interaction. So delight should come from the product and the actual service, not from what happens when something goes wrong. Yeah, I I love that perspective. And it kind of made me sort of shift my thinking a little bit on you know, some of the experiences I've had and some of the ways that we talk about that in our field of customer success. I wanted to ask, who do you see as the main audience for this book? When we first created it, we envisioned it largely being for people who are running big customer service operations. Okay. Call center leaders, VPs of customer success and customer experience. And while that certainly has always been the core audience, we were very surprised and delighted to find out (laughs) that there was a much wider audience than we had imagined. Heads of marketing, heads of sales. In fact, some of the warmest responses we got were speaking to audiences of all CEOs. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these simple enough ideas, but it's just different enough from what most companies are doing that it became a light bulb moment for a lot of people who either read the book or have heard the findings. Yeah, I love it. And I I really find that I am most attracted to books that have a lot of research behind them because I feel like there's just a lot of very fluffy business books out there that are sort of like, here's eight things you should do. And yours is very in-depth. And at the beginning of every chapter, you really go into a lot of the research behind what you were doing. What drove you toward that research in the first place? It's something that we had been doing for many years. And in fact, the book, although it is a contiguous narrative, is the product of five years of different (laughs) research that we have been doing into customer service and customer experience, largely based on the psychology of what happens when something goes wrong, when a customer has to contact service. How does that impact a person's future loyalty? One of the questions we like to ask is, what percentage of your customers are loyal today? And it turns out there's a precise mathematical answer. And it is, I'll I'll give you a chance to guess if you like, what percentage of your customers are loyal today? I'm going to guess it's not NPS. (laughs) (laughs) No. In fact, the precise answer is 100.0%. Because loyalty isn't a present state consideration. Loyalty is a prediction of what you're going to do in the future. If you're a customer today, you're loyal today. The question is, what are you going to do tomorrow? And what are you going to do a month from now and a year from now? And certainly it is true that the single most influential experience a person can have that would impact their future loyalty is if something goes wrong, how does the company handle it? So the rubber meets the road when it comes to loyalty when there's an issue that requires a customer to reach back out to that company through their service channels. And the impact of that experience is almost always the determinant of future loyalty. So a customer was loyal yesterday. Now there's a problem today. And how you resolve it and how that experience feels to that customer 
will likely be the determinant as to whether or not they'd be loyal tomorrow. Yeah. One of the things that really stood out to me, um, we just, I, I just on the podcast, as of when we're recording this, reviewed chapters three and four. And I think it was in chapter four where you talk about the fact that, you know, effortless means one third is actual effort on the part of the customer. About two thirds is how they feel about that interaction. And that's what matters. And that just stood out to me among all the rest of the research as something that was so important. And you have some really good coaching for people in that chapter on what they can do to make sure that experience is really good. Um, and you know what to say in different situations and some frameworks for that. I also loved the um, examples that you had in that chapter. How did you go about finding the companies that were doing this? And you know, I know you wrote about several of them throughout the book. Were they basing what they were doing on on your advice as a consultancy, or were they kind of doing this on their own and you found them? How did you identify these folks that are doing a great job with this? Yeah, as part of our research, we'd been working with hundreds of different companies and came to discover that there were some companies that largely intuitively had figured out some of the things that we learned through the research. Okay. This data point that you're referring to, which we say effort is one third due and two thirds feel. Yeah. That was part of a follow on discovery that we did about a year after the initial discovery. So to, to roll back to the first thing we learned, the initial research was based on a study where we tried to determine what's the one question you could ask a customer after a service interaction to determine their future loyalty. We experimented with lots of different questions and lots of permutations of word choice. And what we discovered, which was a surprise to us at first, is that a person's answer to the question how much effort was required for you to get your issue resolved? Whatever their answer to that question is, is a nearly perfect predictor of that person's future loyalty. But at first, that was just words. We never explained effort in any way. We just simply offered the word and came to find out that a person's reaction to that question and that word was this nearly perfect barometer of their future behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, about a year later, we did a study to discover how do people assess effort? How does a person decide how much effort was required to resolve an issue? And what goes through their mind, first of all, as they're having a service experience, and then as they're answering this effort question? And that's when we learn that what a customer has to do, so how many things you have to do to get your issue resolved, how long it takes to do those things, how complex those things are, that's what we thought effort was, what you have to do. But we, we discovered it's really only a third of how people assess effort. And the other two thirds is just how the whole experience feels. Mm -hmm. And what we've discovered then is that there are many ways to influence how a person feels about an experience, even if you can't change what they have to do. Mm -hmm. So here's just a classic example. If you're calling a company and talking to somebody in the call center, and the agent you're talking to, before they even start to describe what's going to have to happen to resolve your issue, is thinking, man, Kristen, this is going to be pretty complex. There's definitely going to be some things you're going to have to do, and it's going to take a while. <laughs> if that person simply says to you, look, I know this seems pretty complex to you, but we've helped hundreds of other people who've been in exactly the same experience, and we've figured out the fastest and easiest way to resolve your issue. So why don't we work together as a team? 
to do that and make this happen as fast and, and as easily as possible, to which 100.0% of customers will say, that sounds great. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and then, then the, rep yeah. could, the rep could do exactly the same thing they were going to do anyway. And at yep. the end of the experience, the customer will say, wow, that was easier than I thought it would be. Because uh -huh. you told them it would be. Yep. So this became the art and science of what we started to call experience engineering. Mm -hmm. Engineering and experience to feel like less effort, even if the company can't change what the customer has to do. And yeah. that then became fertile ground, which continues to bear fruit to this day. Because any experience can be made to feel like less effort depending on the skill and the interpersonal attitude of the person you're talking to. Yeah, so I mean... Again, to dissect that into its component parts and could speak about that at great length. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to some of the things that, you know, if you've been through any kind of negotiation training before you kind of get trained on like anchoring right. and, you know, kind of positioning things in a positive way instead of in a negative way. And I think it's, it's sometimes hard. I mean, it's naturally hard to go into a conversation with a customer where you know it's going to be a tough conversation to have to come in with that positive approach. But I think if you can plan it ahead of time, that positions your reps to feel really confident doing that. And it helps that conversation to go more smoothly. So I think there's a huge planning component to what you're talking about that makes the, the biggest difference. You can't just rely on reps to feel you know, to be taught soft skills and then feel really good about what they're doing. It's having the plan for them to follow that makes the big difference. And I think I really liked in chapter four, how you really drove that home. We've come to learn that soft skills are generally overrated because yeah. they're typically interpreted as be nice, be friendly, use the customer's <laughs> name, ask them about the yeah. weather, ask them about their kids. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with being a nice, friendly person. Sure. But being friendly doesn't solve any problems. What solves a problem, and the thing that we've discovered is the single biggest influence on how the experience feels, is whose side is that other person on? Right. Are they advocating for you? Are they on your side? Or are they very clearly just a policy-spouting automaton who's been <laughs> hired by a company? Right. So another question we like to ask is, what does this term mean? Customer service rep. People look at us like, really, that's your question? Uh, it means customer service representative. Of course it does. But who is that person representing? Mm -hmm. And invariably, the answer is, well, they're representing the company. They're a paid employee of the company. <laughs> to which we say, well, what if they were representing the customer? You know, what if you told your service people from now on, your job is to represent the person you're talking to, to be on their side, to be their guide, their Sherpa, who shows them the fastest route to the top of Everest, their court-appointed attorney, who's on yeah. your side to help you negotiate and navigate the complex legal system. The very fact that it's clear to a customer that the person they're talking to is on their side completely changes the way the whole experience feels. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in customer success, which is a little different than customer service, um, in that it, it theoretically <laughs> should be more proactive. I think there's a kind of natural tendency for the CSMs or the customer success managers to be more of that advocate for the customer. But 
I think there still needs to be that plan behind it. Like what should they be doing in different scenarios so that they don't come across as only for the customer, but they're advocating for their company as well. And they're sitting firmly in that middle ground where they're helping both parties. Right. And even, you know, the the most self-absorbed customer recognizes there has to be a balance. I mean, this company doesn't exist for your benefit. I mean, every company (laughs) exists to make money and to be successful, but to find exactly that right balance. Yeah. Where both the company and the customer feel like they got the best part of the deal. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And I want to ask you about your your writing of the book. So this is more of an author question. But what are your personal favorite and least favorite parts of the book as an author? And I know no author wants to say there's a part of the book that's their least favorite. So maybe let me put it this way. What was your least favorite to write? I think our least favorite to write at the time was everything that we were discussing about the online world. Because this book was originally written in 2014, and online self-service and the digitization of the service world was still very nascent at that time. Mm -hmm. So we felt compelled to write what we knew about it. But at that time, we were still learning. So it felt like we were a little bit out ahead of ourselves in some of the things we wrote in the book at that time. But of course, since then, we've learned so much more about the psychology of customer interactions in self-service and in digital interactions. Yeah. So at the time, it felt like we needed to include what we knew, but what we knew was still very new. Uh-huh. So what was your favorite part? My favorite part is always anything that's about influencing the psychology of customer okay. service. People who work in customer service and to some degree customer success are often more operationally minded. There's processes, there's schedules, there's implementation, there's plans, and all those things matter to some degree. But how you can influence the way another person feels, which seems instinctive or intuitive or more like an art form, can also be expressed in more scientific and more process-oriented terms. One of the things that we learned by interviewing people who work in frontline service positions is that when you talk to the people who are the absolutely best people people, people who are just really good at being able to pick up on somebody else's vibe or to flex their own personality to someone else's, when you ask them, how do you do exactly what you do? Because clearly what you do is a little bit different and special compared to other people. And the number one answer we get is, what are you talking about? Because there are people who are just intuitive in the way they interact with others, and they don't think about it as something they're trying to do or even to think about it as something special, but it is. Uh And what we've learned is that it is very possible when you learn from the most intuitive people to extract from that what others can do to teach intuition. Mm -hmm. And that's always been the most exciting thing, the idea that intuition and interpersonal skills can be taught and can be scalable even in a big operation. That is really exciting because I think a lot of people sort of feel like you're either born with it or you're not. And that's, that's kind of sad if you think about it, you know, because it means there's a whole lot of people who might be really great who just never were taught how to do that. And it's assumed that they can't make it in this field. And I think you can learn a lot of things (laughs) 
So it's exciting to hear that. That's your perspective as well. And so much of it is really just being in tune with the other person. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we have often said is that while every company in the world says, we're trying to become more customer-centric, the vast majority of companies think they're becoming customer-centric by spending a lot more time thinking about their customers. What we've learned is that if you really want to become customer-centric, stop thinking about your customers and start trying to think like your customer. Yeah. And that, at first, doesn't seem that easy to do because you as a company employer are saddled with all these responsibilities and goals and objectives and targets that you're trying to hit, whereas the person on the other end of the interaction doesn't know about any of those things and doesn't care about any of those things. So to be able to put yourself entirely in the place of another person and even to understand how your words and attitude impact that other person, which again, seems like it's an intuition or just a very special people skill can be taught and heightened and it can be scaled. Yeah. I love that approach. I want to ask Rick, before we wrap up, what are you working on next? So much to the earlier response I gave about customer service and customer success in the digital world, that's the next project. So cool. before long, you'll hear an announcement about yet another book, which while not exactly a sequel to Effortless, covers a lot of the same ground, but entirely from the perspective of digital customer service. And that, of course, is where the world is at and certainly where the world is going. Yeah. I love that. That is so needed in our field. So I'm very excited about that one. We'll have to have you back on the show when that one comes out. I hope so. (laughs) Well, Rick, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to our audience today. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join Reading for Success next time.